Welcome to The Bible and the English Major. I'm Marin, your host. In each episode of this podcast, we're going to analyze stories from Scripture the way an English major would, unpacking the parts to gain a better understanding of the whole. I'll keep it interesting because I'd love to start a conversation. After all, the best part of any good story is talking about it with friends. to see an article version of this and future podcasts, you can go to my website at marandjo.com. There, you'll find citations to the work I reference, as well as links to other interesting articles on the topic. Welcome to a new series on a couple of the well women of the Bible. Sometimes believing has to come before seeing. To fully see the woman in this episode, you'll need to believe that this story isn't actually about judging her past, that a woman can make a dang good theologian, and that Jesus gets a huge kick out of hanging out with her. This series is on John 4, verses 1 through 38. I will be doing my speed run, but if you're the kind of person that wants to read it on your own, now is the time. John 4, 1 through 38. All right, so our speed run today is a conversation. It's a dialogue, almost the whole thing. And it's long. This is the longest dialogue in the Gospels. So it'll be a little fun to see what happens here. Okay, I'm setting my timer. On my mark. Get set. Go. Jesus is alone at a well. A Samaritan woman comes. He says, hey, can I have a drink? She's like, you're crazy. Why are you talking to me? And he says, actually, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me and I'd give you living water. She says, you don't have a bucket. Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob? Because how are you going to get me any water at all? He says, ah, the water here, you'll get thirsty again. But the water I'm talking about, it will bubble up inside you. It'll gush to eternal life. Whoa, she says, I'm interested. Can I have some of that water, please? He says, bring me your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, I know, but you've had five husbands, actually, and the one you're with now is not your husband. She says, uh, excuse me, I think you're actually a prophet, and since you are, let's talk theology. So they get into the weeds about the temple and stuff, and eventually she says, you know, I think maybe you're the Messiah, and he says, ah, yes, I am, and off to town she goes to spread this amazing news. The disciples come back, and Jesus is too excited to eat what they've brought him. I think I nailed it. Here's what you need to know. This is the part where I explain some context. During my illustrious career as a camp counselor, I gave occasional campfire messages. After one especially moving message, a woman yelled to me from across camp, Great talk, moron! Since the only other person who calls me that is my rotten brother, I'm fairly sure she was just mispronouncing my uncommon name. But it may be that my talk wasn't as scintillating as I thought. Names matter. So let's discuss three before we get on with the show. The first name we need to understand is Jacob, because the setting for this story is Jacob's well, and the woman in our story claims him as an ancestor. So who is this guy? 
Remember I said the name of God's people, Israel, was first given to a man who injures his hip, wrestling with God? I'll give you three guesses what the guy's name is before God changes it to Israel. Good old Jacob. You can read most of his story in Genesis chapters 25 to 35. The next name is Samaritan. Somewhere along ancient lines, a split occurred within God's people between the northern Samaritan tribes and the southern tribes of Judah, who became the Jews of the New Testament. While the cause of the split is truly tough to decipher, family drama always is. Tradition says members of the northern tribes married outside the Israelite people and adopted the gods of those cultures along with the God of Israel. This was a problem because God called the Israelites to have no other gods. Another point of contention between the groups was where the temple should be, as the woman in our story mentions in verses 20 to 21. A Sunday school summary may have taught you that the Jews didn't like the Samaritans, but a better summary is that some Jews didn't like Samaritans. Many sources written by ancient rabbis indicate ambivalence toward them, and whatever disdain existed was probably mutual. The third name we need to understand is Messiah. It means anointed one. In the Hebrew Bible, prophets, priests, and kings are anointed with oil as a sign they are chosen by God for a specific purpose. Some first century Jews believed in prophecies of a coming anointed one, but there was no consensus on precisely who they should look for. John knows exactly who the Messiah is, though, and he's hard at work revealing his identity, including in this story. Unlike Mark, who only gives the unclean spirits the ability to recognize Jesus' true identity, John sees no need to be cagey about who he is. In just the first three chapters of John's gospel, two people have already referred to Jesus as Messiah, as well as Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Son of God, and king of Israel. One more heads up for this story. It's all about tone. You know when you get a text message and you can't tell whether or not you're in trouble? Thanks for taking out the trash. Can be very ambiguous without a friendly exclamation mark, especially if you can't remember taking it out. It's why God invented emojis. John is that friend who loves to text flip through his gospel, dialogue, everywhere. I'm generally a fan, but the man could have used some emojis, not so much for his first audience, but for us today. Lacking emojis, the only way we're going to figure out the tone of this conversation is through context. I see life giving joy. Let's see if you do too. Let's get on with the show the part where we really dive into the story. Are you ready for some name-calling? No worries. Rather than the usual nasty downward spiral, the verbal sparring here bubbles up towards truth and life. Our gospel writer himself starts the name-calling. A person could drown in all the names of people and cities John douses us with, in just the first five verses, to stay afloat, notice he uses the Samaritan label three times. 
We hear in verse 5 that Jesus is hanging out at a well near a Samaritan city. Verse 7 tells us a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And in verse 9, we find out the Samaritan woman speaks to Jesus. Why is this Samaritan label so important? Whatever actual historical tension was present between Samaritans and Jews, John expects that we feel some literary tension here. The woman is surprised by Jesus right off the bat. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Verse 9. More name-calling. She calls herself woman of Samaria, and she calls Jesus Jew, which is exactly what we do when we meet people, right? We size each other up and take note of the differences. Keep in mind, she's alone in the middle of nowhere with a strange man. I can appreciate her need for feistiness. Jesus disarms her, though. He offers a riddle. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. I picture a huge smile on Jesus' face when he says this. Here's a translation. If you had any idea who I am, you would ask me for water. And in this parched land where you spend so much energy hauling it around, it would be my great joy to give you flowing, easily accessible, living water. Curious, she takes the bait. Sir, you have no bucket. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Verse 12. Who does this guy think he is anyway? Her questions challenge Jesus and continue the name calling. Her name for Jesus shifts from Jew to Sir. And by naming the famous Jacob as her ancestor, her name for herself shifts from woman of Samaria to daughter of Israel. Jerome Nary thinks she's even throwing a pun in there with her question, suggesting that, quote, Jesus is supplanting Jacob, thus doing to Jacob what he did to his brother Esau, end quote. Whatever game Jesus is playing, she's willing to join in. Do I detect a smile on her face too? Is this banter? It's Jesus' turn again. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. Verses 13 and 14. If you were a woman whose daily task was to haul heavy jars of water for your household, this claim would get you interested, whether you heard it literally or metaphorically. Jesus speaks this woman's language. Sir, she says again in verse 15, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. She's already doing exactly what Jesus said she would do in verse 10, asking him for water, even though she doesn't know who he is yet. She's in the threshold, a liminal space between letting go of the literal reality she knows and taking hold of the spiritual truth Jesus offers her, which explains why the conversation is about to shift so dramatically. According to Joanne Davidson, quote, Jesus has heard the woman's desire to thirst no more. 
Thus, he's gently leading her to recognize her need for a savior. End quote. He needs her to get to both her truth and his. So Jesus asked her to go get her husband and bring him back. Now it's her turn to supply a riddle. I have no husband. But Jesus is done playing and shows his hand. You're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Verses 17 and 18. We could now choose to go Lady Whistledown and start writing scandal everywhere. But scandal is not at all the point of the story. Jesus isn't condemning her past or seeking repentance. She tells the story she's ready to tell, and then by finishing the story, he draws her through the doorway to help her understand who she's talking to. How do I know? Context. In the very next verse, she calls him Sir one more time and then gives him a new name. Prophet. She doesn't feel condemned. She feels seen. And now she desires to see for herself. Rather than carrying away her water jar in shame, she seizes her opportunity to learn from a man who knows things he could only have received from God. She puts on her theologian hat and comments on the burning Samaritan Jewish question of where the temple should be in verse 20. Jesus sees not only her past, but also her intellect, and teaches her that worship isn't a question of where, but a question of how, in spirit and truth. Verse 24. She has been seen, and now she sees. She understands the teaching and solves Jesus' identity riddle. She gives him one more name by saying, I know that Messiah is coming. And Jesus confirms, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Essentially, she names God. And Jesus grants her what Davidson describes as a, quote, direct, definitive revelation of the Messiah rarely given to anyone, end quote, let alone a Samaritan woman. Can you imagine? This woman has been dragging both her jar and the weight of a devastating past to this well for who knows how long. Losing five husbands, whether through death or divorce, would certainly be devastating. They would have left her, by the way. She had no power to divorce them. As for her current situation, she may be committing adultery, but she may also be a concubine or slave, situations that are both born out of desperation. Whatever the case, she meets a man she expects to disdain her because she's a Samaritan. But instead, he sees her, respects her, and fulfills a promise. In verse 28, when she returns to the city to tell the Samaritans about the Messiah she's just seen, she leaves her water jar behind. She doesn't need it anymore, because what Jesus said would happen has happened. She's got living water, also known as the Holy Spirit, gushing in her now, and she can't contain it. 
It's flowing out of her and giving life to everyone who hears her story. They are so compelled by her words that they immediately head to the well to see for themselves. Verse 30. My favorite part is that Jesus is overflowing with life, too. The disciples urge him to eat the lunch they've just brought him, but he's too giddy to even eat. Verse 32. He says his food is to do the work of God, and today that work is a delightful conversation with a burdened but perceptive woman. He knows as they speak that his words fill her with uncontainable life. By joyfully wondering aloud, he can't be the Messiah, can he? She also brings life to many people who have been fractioned off by their collective complicated past. The irony of it all is that in town, where the 12 chosen disciples of Jesus have only found takeout, the woman of Samaria finds many believers who end up giving Jesus yet another name in verse 42, Savior of the World. Are there any Genesis fans out there who can tell me what stories John alludes to in this story? There's more than one answer. We'll be focusing on one of them next time. But until then, I have a personal favor to ask. Our family lacks a dog. Here's the deal. My dear husband, Matt, says that if we get 100,000 subscribers, we can get a dog. I'm desperately hoping he's exaggerating on that number, but... The point here is we need more subscribers. So number one, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do. And number two, please spread the word. The Schneiders need a puppy. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell people you don't like very much, tell your parents, tell your cousins, just tell everybody. Also, please follow me on social media. All of my links are in the show notes. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for listening.